Hello, this is Steve. Welcome to the podcast. This is the episode on my drug-fueled vision quest, part two, the snake ghost. An incident with a snake happened in August 1971 on an archaeological site in southern Illinois, the summer after my sophomore year of college. For many years afterwards, I rarely thought about it. But not long after I became a Christian and was baptized in 1986, the memory of the incident began to haunt me almost every night. Now, over 50 years after the incident, I finally understand its spiritual significance in my life. In the last episode, I was midway through sophomore year in college and had just undertaken a secret project, a vision quest. When I used drugs with my friends, I would now be searching for God the Father on a vision quest, inspired by the traditions of various North and Central American Indian tribes that I was studying in my anthropology classes. And I would be acting out my childhood belief that I had been a North American Woodlands Indian brave in a previous life. But if I had known then what I know now about the Bible and also about American Indian traditions, I certainly would not have done what I did. Among the woodland Indian tribes of North America, snakes have long been held in fear and reverence. I remember as a young boy in the late 1950s visiting Snake Mound in northern Ohio with my parents and grandmother. Snake Mound is a very long and winding earthwork or mound in the shape of a snake best viewed from the air. Its age is unknown, with estimates ranging from 300 B.C. to 1500 A.D. Even today, the snake figures in the religious beliefs of many North American Indian tribes. Among the Cherokee, originally from the eastern woodlands, the word for snake is indadu, and every precaution is taken to avoid killing or offending one, especially the rattlesnake. He who kills an ordinary snake will soon see others, and if he kills a second one, so many snakes will surround him that the sight of their piercing bright eyes and darting tongues will drive him mad, and he will be lost forever in the woods. But the king of the snake tribe is the rattlesnake. The rattlesnake was once a man who was transformed into a snake in order to save the human race from extermination by the sun. He who kills a rattlesnake must atone for his crime by asking pardon of the snake's ghost. Otherwise, the snake ghost's living relatives will track down the offender and bite him so that he will die. The incident with the snake happened while I was working on an archaeological site near the small town of Chesterfield in southern Illinois. The site was on a large farm that had a good-sized stream running through it. A friend who was a graduate student, whom I had met at the nearby Coster site a year before, was running this site for his Ph.D. thesis. 
I had worked most of that summer of 1971 in a steel mill in Chicago, then rode my motorcycle down to help out my friend on his dig for a week or so. The zoologist on the site needed some animal skeletons for his comparative anatomy collection of bones. That way, he could compare ancient animal bones from the site with modern bones from known animals and identify what the Indians had been killing and eating. The zoologist, who was a grad student, asked us all to bring in some dead animals for his collection. This is a standard practice and was done on the Coster site too. They put the dead animals in a box with a teeming horde of dermested beetles that eat up the flesh, leaving only the gleaming white bones. Roadkill was the usual source of dead animals, but the zoologist didn't want any animals with broken or crushed bones, even though a roadkill without broken bones can be hard to find. An undergrad is always happy to help the grad students, so I made it my goal to bring back a dead animal with no broken bones. One hot afternoon while working on the dig, I took a break and went walking between a cornfield and the trees that bordered the creek. It's worth noting that I was not on drugs at that time. Suddenly, I was very strongly drawn to turn to my left, go down through the trees, and down a short embankment to the creek. I just felt strangely compelled to do this. Once I was down by the creek, a primordial scene lay before me on that hot summer day. The beautiful water flowed slowly in the dappled green shade of the trees. A dead tree branch extended out over the water about six feet above it. On this branch, motionless but head raised, was a black snake about two feet long. There was something dreamlike about the entire scene. It was like a stage set just for me to make my entrance as an actor in a play. And to me, the play was that I wanted that snake as my contribution to the zoologist's dead animal collection. On the muddy bank was a dead stick. I picked up the stick and held it out in front of the snake. The snake voluntarily glided off its dead branch and coiled itself around my stick. But now what would I do with it? It couldn't have any broken bones. Looking around, I noticed a rusty old coffee can on the bank nearby. Aha, I would drown it in the coffee can. Using my other hand, I picked up the coffee can and filled it with water from the creek. I put the end of the stick with the snake under the water in the coffee can. The snake made no effort to escape. After a while, the snake raised its head out of the water. I found another stick and forced its head down under the water again. The snake began writhing. I was cold and remorseless. Finally, bubbles came up and the snake went limp. Happy with having found an animal to contribute to science, I took the snake to the zoologist's outdoor lab where he and some undergraduate students were working. I brought you this snake for your collection, I said expecting smiles and approval all around. But no smiles and no approval 
just silence and stares. The zoologist broke the silence. Thanks, but we don't need snakes, he said. The Indians didn't eat snakes. Where did you get it? A girl asked. I killed it, I said. How did you kill it? I drowned it so there would be no broken bones. Oh. Another long, silent pause. And then everyone else went back to their work. And the sudden realization that what I had intended to be good and had thought to be good was instead very bad. Exactly how bad has taken me most of my life to figure out. The answer came to me only recently while prayerfully studying the Bible. Let's share those Bible passages as part of our simple prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, many Christians can recite the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But how many of us can recite the passages immediately preceding? Jesus had just told Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God until he has been born again. Nicodemus twice asked Jesus how this is possible. Please listen to John chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, in which Jesus answers Nicodemus and compares himself, Jesus, with a serpent. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So those are the words of Jesus followed immediately by the famous John 3.16 that so many people know and have memorized. But very few people would be able to recite from memory uh, those lines regarding a snake. There's so many people that don't like snakes, but here Jesus compared himself with a serpent. It was not the same serpent as in the Garden of Eden, but rather the fiery serpent, as referred to, was made of bronze, molten bronze, and it was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. The serpent in the Garden of Eden that we commonly think of as, as deceiving Eve and Adam uh, was either a real serpent that had been entered into and possessed by Satan, or perhaps Satan appearing in the guise of a serpent. But it was Satan and not the serpent itself who deceived Adam and Eve. 
the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10, tells us this by stating, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. But Jesus, when he answered Nicodemus, was referring to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 8. These are discussing an incident when Moses was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. And here we go, verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea in order to bypass the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient on the journey and spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you led us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. So the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people, and many of the Israelites were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. If anyone who was bitten looked at the bronze snake, he would live. So why did Jesus compare himself to that fiery bronze serpent? Jesus was prophesying the manner of his own death, being lifted up on a cross. And Jesus was saying that as it was necessary to lift up the bronze serpent to save the snakebite victims, the death of Jesus on the cross would be necessary to save us from sin and bring us eternal life. Because snakes shed their skin, they are an ancient symbol of healing and power. Snakes were not only revered and feared among American Indian tribes, but also throughout the ancient Middle East. The Greek god of healing, Asclepius, was given a rod entwined by a snake by the god Apollo as his symbol of healing, and it was known as the Rod of Asclepius. Another common symbol that uses snakes in the United States is the ancient Caudaceus, which is a winged staff entwined by two serpents. This was originally the symbol of the Greek god Hermes, who was the herald of the gods and also conducted souls into the afterlife. In later antiquity, it was believed that this rod would give a gentle death to the dying and could bring the dead back to life. In ancient Egypt, the pharaoh wore a crown featuring a ureos, which was the head of a rearing cobra. The famous golden mask of King Tutankhamun features such a cobra. The cobra symbol of the ureos dates back to Pharaoh Den during the first dynasty of ancient Egypt, going way back to the third millennium BC. But dear Heavenly Father, when you empowered Moses to confront the Pharaoh and demand that he let your people go, the cobra on the Pharaoh's crown was no match for the power that you gave Moses. 
In the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, we read, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, you are to say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers and magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same things by their magic arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed up the other staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Dear Heavenly Father, you have used serpents in mighty ways. You've made Aaron's staff swallow up the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians, and you instructed Moses to raise up a fiery bronze serpent in the wilderness, and Jesus, your son, compared himself to that bronze serpent. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. When he came up out of the water, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Our ceremony of baptism today is symbolic of death and of resurrection to eternal life. On two occasions, Jesus used the word baptism to predict his suffering and death on the cross. In the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 38, Two disciples argued about their positions of greatness. But Jesus said to them, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, we read, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Dear Heavenly Father, Jesus compared himself to a serpent, and he compared his baptism to his suffering and death on a cross. Your only begotten Son, Jesus, went willingly to a dead wooden cross, praying that your will be done, not his. The snake that I found on the tree branch slid willingly onto the dead stick that I offered it and remained wound around that stick until it died. Jesus compared himself to the serpent that Moses raised up in the wilderness, but I found a serpent already raised up on a branch in the wilderness, and I killed it. Jesus compared his baptism to his future suffering and death on the cross, and I gave that snake a baptism of death by drowning. Dear Heavenly Father, for over 35 years since after my own baptism, I've been haunted by the memory of drowning that snake. In the darkness of night, as I quench my thirst by drinking long and deeply and begin to be short of air, I remember the suffering that I cruelly inflicted upon that snake and the snake writhing in agony, and I, I repent. Though I'm not worthy of it, I humbly beg your mercy and forgiveness. I started this journey on a drug-fueled vision quest, seeking you, dear Heavenly Father. 
When I killed the snake, I was not on drugs. I was just blinded by the worldly goal of bringing back a dead animal with no broken bones for the study of science. I didn't see a beautiful living creature of your creation worthy of being raised up towards heaven. Though I had committed myself to a vision quest, I was blind to what I had already found before me. I'm not saying that it was Jesus and the snake that I killed, nor that divine providence had set up that situation for me to walk into. But I believe that both of those things are possible. And the Bible has many references to animals and inanimate objects being conscious and capable of praising God and doing his will. I'll have, I'll have to do an episode on those sometime. What is certain, though, is that Jesus compared himself to a serpent, and he compared baptism to his suffering and death, and I killed the snake by baptizing it to death in a rusty coffee can. So what I did to the snake was at least like killing Jesus. And if any good has come from this, it's that I now know for certain in the depths of my soul that I am a sinner and that Jesus died for me. I do still recall the memory of the snake almost every night, but really for some time now I can no longer call it a haunting. And that relief can only have been possible through the divine mercy of you, dear God. Dear Heavenly Father, I was so lost and was so blind. I'm grateful beyond words that because of my grandmother and many other people that I had at least started searching for you at that time and that today I am found and I am entirely yours. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son, dear Heavenly Father, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Even, I hope and pray, a miserable sinner like me and like all of us.